Okay, good evening, everyone. So for those of you who don't meet, know me uh, or have not met me, I'm Cameron. Um, I've actually just spent the last five years studying pharmacology at Glasgow University, and I had my final uh, year exams just a few weeks ago, so it's been so nice not having to like, worry about exams or anything again, so it's good. But I've been spending time um, uh, studying this passage and preparing this talk, which has been quite a nice kind of um, way away from pharmacology textbooks and papers, so thanks to the church for letting me speak here. Uh, so tonight we're going to be continuing our series looking at the letters in the book of Revelation, looking specifically at the church in Thyatira. So without further ado, let's look at the passage, and it's in Revelations 2, 18 to 29. So it starts saying, To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you're now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of their ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the church will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teachings and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I have come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So before we go into this passage, let's have a think about why uh, this letter was written to the church in Thyatira in the first place, uh, and look at a bit of background about what was going on in the city. So like the other cities mentioned in the letters in the book of Revelation, Thyatira was located in uh, Asia Minor, which is now part of modern-day Turkey. Colin Hammer, one of the preeminent scholars on these seven churches in Revelations, said that the longest and the most difficult of the seven letters is addressed to the least known, the least important, and the least remarkable of the cities. So thank you for letting me do this one. <laughs> so Thyatira was initially founded as a military outpost with a large population of soldiers living there initially. However, during the Roman rule in first century AD and the stability that came through that, the city emerged as an important industrial and, t and trade center being famous for its dye industry and the production of purple cloth. A key feature of the industrial culture in Thyatira were these trade guilds which were established. These trade guilds were societies of merchants and tradesmen uh, who came together and influenced the industry and commerce within the city. Membership of these trade guilds was uh, compulsory for tradespeople in the city and it allowed for secure employment and other benefits such as protecting the members' economic interests. However, in these trade guilds in Thyatira, there was a close affiliation to pagan worship, 
where each guild was under the patronage of a particular pagan god. Members were therefore obliged to take part in these feasts in honor of religious or in honor of pagan worship or pagan gods, which included worshiping these idols along with sexually immoral practices. These, these would then be followed by uh, business, business discussions, which would then uh, allow for the organization of the business and trade within the city. For people who weren't a part of these trade guilds, there was therefore uh, an issue with whether they'd have an economic standing within the city, which is an important challenge to consider for the Christians who are living in Thyatira. Within the church in Thyatira, some were teaching that these pagan practices were only superficial acts, which had little, little relevance or impact on what the individuals actually believed. Others in the church taught that the Christians should have a strong strength of character, and that would allow them to overcome the temptation that was uh, allowing them, or the temptation that was leading them into these uh, religious feasts and the sexual immorality. This issue, therefore, underlies the key issue that was within the church, and we'll continue to look at the passage now. So, like the other letters, they have a common structure uh, in the book of Revelation. We see that Jesus is initially telling John to. Um, we see that Jesus is initially telling John to write to the church in Thyatira. Jesus identifies himself in a unique way to the church, which is then followed by him complimenting uh, them for the good things that they've done in his eyes. This is then followed by a severe warning for the things that they had done wrong, followed by a description of the punishment that will follow them if they don't repent of their ways. Next, Jesus then offers encouragement and a promise for those who are faithful to him towards the end. Uh, and then this is, the, this is then followed by an exhortation to hear this message that he's given. So let's look at the verses. Okay, so in verse 18, Jesus directs John to write to the church in Thyatira. He identifies himself as the Son of God, followed by imagery, which reflects back to the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Interestingly, this letter is the only one that explicitly states that Jesus was the Son of God. And I think this is important, where in Thyatira, one of the pagan gods worshipped within the trade guilds was Apollo, the Greek sun god, said to be the son of Zeus. I therefore believe that Jesus uh, made this point to say that he was the son of God to make sure that they are worshipping the true son of God. So as we saw in chapter 1 uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus' heavenly form was described, which is continued here, with his eyes being like burn, uh, blazing fire and his feet like burnished bronze, which is important to think about how uh, his eyes penetrate our hearts and our minds and know the things going on there. And his feet being like burnished bronze describes his steadfastness and his just nature. So looking on, in verse 9, Jesus then mentions the good things done by the church in Thyatira. He mentions their deeds, their love, their faith, their service, and their perseverance. In addition, he says that the church are improving these things, doing now more than they did at first. This contrasts with other churches that we've looked at in previous weeks, such as in Ephesus, where there's caution made against them decreasing in their love for each other, perhaps being too legalistic. So I don't know if anyone knows uh, what this famous starting line is. Any, any ideas? Bingo. Yeah, so it's the, the London Marathon, and it took place last month. Uh, and it's actually something I've been wanting to do for a while, but I've never had like, the, the courage to actually sign up yet. So maybe next year will be the, the year for me. 
Uh, so I don't know if anyone's actually run a marathon in this room or has done like, any crazy endurance event, but you'll know that you have to do a fair amount of training for it, eating healthily, getting good sleep, and avoiding things like smoking and alcohol. On the race day in London, 43 people, not 43 people, that'd be crazy, 43,000 people <laughs> took place. <laughs> 43,000 people took place, or to, uh, participated in the, the race, with only 350 of them failing to complete the course. So the marathon is a long slog, and it's a test of mental resilience as much as physical fitness, where if you finish it within four hours, which is a very respectable time, you're expected to run at a speed of about nine minutes per mile. Like with the churches mentioned in Revelation, the runners might start out well, covering the distance, feeling light on their feet, and thinking the rest of the marathon will just be a breeze. But perseverance is needed here which is highlighted with this next picture of Haley Carothers, an elite runner who ended up having to crawl across the finish line after running for about two and a half hours, showing that dogged perseverance required to finish the race. Crazy. So the church in Thyatira is being praised by Jesus here for continuing to persevere in their good deeds, their faith, their services, and their love for each other, where other churches only running for a few miles before showing signs of tiring and failing and going back to their previous way of living. The church in Thyatira was therefore thought to be a good example of the works, services, and love that should be carried out by a church, increasing in these over time where others have been falling short. However, despite these successes, the church in Thyatira isn't all about good works and love. So in verse 20, we then see this uh, severe warning being given to them by Jesus. We need to remember at this point the uh, trade guilds that were a part of the culture in Thyatira. The Christians in the city had, had to face this challenge where they, were, they had to choose whether they were going to be involved in the trade guilds, potentially compromising their faith and being involved in the pagan practices associated with them. Or they could reject membership to the trade guilds and therefore potentially face economic hardships and poverty that may result. Within the church, uh, we have this warning, or this warning is given against the church for the church tolerating a woman called, uh, or described as Jezebel. And she's a self-proclaimed prophet who is leading people away from God and into the sexual immorality and the participation of these religious feasts in honor of the pagan gods. So this woman was likely someone within the church who was leading uh, the established Christians away from God, telling them that it wouldn't be an issue or a compromise for them to participate in these pagan practices, and that even God was approving of what they were doing, which was in fact warned against by Jesus. So the description of the woman as Jezebel, so Jezebel probably isn't her name, but it refers back to uh, the evil queen of the Israelite king Ahab, who is described in the Old Testament in the first, in first Kings. So this woman, uh, Jezebel, led Ahab and the Israelite nation away from God and worshipped the pagan god Baal. The church in Thyatira has been described as the adulteress or the corrupt church, committing physical adultery which reflects the spiritual, spiritual adultery that was also going on. We need to remember here how the relationship of Christ with the church reflects that between a husband and a wife. The physical adultery that was going on therefore reflects the pain inflicted on God by the spiritual adultery that was also going on simultaneously. 
The church in Thyatira therefore received a warning against tolerating the sin and the evil that was going on. Despite carrying out the good deeds and the love that they're given, despite carrying out good deeds and loving each other as we're told to do as Christians, they weren't really standing up for what they believed and what they were being taught by uh, their teachers. And this contrasts with the more legalistic approach taken elsewhere in different churches. And I think this is still relevant to us today. And we're therefore offered our first challenge from this letter to grow in our faith. So as shown in the uh, churches, or as shown with the challenge, as shown with the churches in the book of Revelation, notably the church in Ephesus and in Thyatira, we see that there needs to be a balance here where we have to love each other and show grace towards each other as grace and love have been shown to us, and also to love God in a way that changes our hearts. But we also need to stand up for our faith and for what we've been taught. If we come across sin and evil in our lives or in the church, we'd be wrong to tolerate it. That evil needs to be tackled and challenged. We might be thinking personally that we have certain parts of our lives that we know are in opposition to our faith, but we try to rationalize that they're just minor things and that overall we're good people. For example, that might be choosing to drink excessively and letting loose at the weekends, trying to please people instead of God, taking shortcuts at work which might compromise your integrity, or looking at something you know is wrong online. So, I'm a pharmacologist. Uh, I study drugs and their effects in the body, which is fascinating if you want to talk about it, grab me afterwards. Uh, So in pharmacology, we talk about how the therapeutic use of a drug relates to its dose, or how much of it is given, with most of them being safe at the level given to you by the doctor. However, at increasing doses, these become increasingly toxic. Fascinatingly, one of the most toxic agents known to man is actually one that people routinely inject into their faces for cosmetic reasons. This is botulinum toxin, or Botox. Um, At a dose of only 140 nanograms, that's 0.0000014 grams, uh, Botox is potent enough to kill. To put this into context, ibuprofen, you take for pain relief and other stuff, uh, is usually given at a dose of 200 to 400 milligrams, or 0.4 grams. This is over a million times the lethal dose of Botox. So even at such low doses, this toxin, Botox, is able to have a considerable effect in the body. We cannot tolerate even a little of this. Likewise for ourselves and for the church, we cannot tolerate even a little sin that goes unrepented, where it'll ultimately kill us, if not challenged. Likewise with Botox, we might try and contain that sin within a certain part of our lives, maybe injecting it into your face. But really, the sin is still there, and it can still do incredible damage to us. So in the church in Thyatira, this was a major warning, and to us today. And we need to strive to keep on following the the teachings of Jesus and to repent when we fall short. But we need to remember to live out our lives with love and grace, as we're told to do. This grace, however, doesn't mean that we can ignore the law as get, we can ignore the law, um, as was said by Paul in the, his letter to the Romans. So he said, But if our own righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, 
Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. So as Christians, we believe that Jesus died to save us from the punishment of our sins and to restore our relationship with God. In Hebrews 10, 26, the writer says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. So I'll say that again. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. We should therefore be chasing after a life that reflects that of Jesus, although we know that we're not without sin, and so we fall short inevitably. I believe that the state of our hearts is important here. If we're genuinely trying to live a life that's uh, similar to that of Jesus and pleasing God, but we stumble along the way and commit sin, our genuine repentance is met with God's grace and his forgiveness. That burden of guilt that comes with the sin will be lifted from our shoulders and will be met with God's love and his grace. And we can continue our lives trying again to do better and live for God. What the writer is referring to in Hebrews 10.26 is if we're playing games with God, trying to live strategically, where we might think that we can deliberately do wrong and sin and live a life that looks like we don't have any faith because we have this thing called grace. Paul says in his passage to the Romans here that if we're living this way, then our condemnation would be just. Genuinely repenting of any sin and longing to live a life like that of Jesus is what we should be doing as Christians. So in the passage, uh, God then shows his patient and forgiving nature in giving the woman the opportunity to repent of her sins, leading people astray. But she rejects this. He therefore describes her punishment, casting her on a bed of suffering, including her associates in her false teachings, unless they repent. The fact that God is a just God and punishes sin might be a scary thought for us. But firstly, as true Christians, we've been saved from that punishment when Jesus went to the cross for us. Further, we can trust that justice will come to those who commit sin that goes unrepented, those who murder, rape, commit genocide, or hate crimes. And we know that we're comforted by the same God when we're afflicted by the sin that occurs around us daily. So in the church in Thyatira, the greatest threat wasn't necessarily this woman who was leading people astray. We see here that she's being dealt with by God. Perhaps it's the tolerance of the rest of the church towards these false teachings, not standing up for what they believed. So I think we can take a lesson from this. A second challenge, maybe, to not become tolerant of the sin in our lives, but to tackle them head on, looking to live a life that's pleasing to God through the help of his Holy Spirit. So in uh, verse, verse 23, it then goes on to describe his punishment. So the woman is punished with her children being killed. So these children aren't necessarily her offspring, but maybe the students who are committed to her teaching. Importantly, while those who have committed to her and have had their hearts hardened against God, um, they're going to be killed alongside her. But those who are flirting with her teachings but not fully uh, converted to them are given this opportunity to repent of their sins and come back to God restoring that relationship again. 
going on, Jesus then talks about the rest of the church, the minority who haven't uh, been influenced by the false prophet and have stood firm in their faithfulness to God. He describes how there's no further burden being imposed on them, only to hold tightly to what they have uh, been taught by him. We should be doing the same. Instead of learning Satan's deep secrets and being vulnerable to the temptation that comes with that, we should hold on to what Jesus has taught us and look upon the light, good, noble things as described to us in Philippians 4.8. The reward that's then uh, given to the people who are faithful is, is then described here. This involves the authority being given to us over the nations and the morning star being given to us, which is a challenging thought. So the one who maintains faithful allegiance to Christ until the end will receive this reward, allowing them to overcome the hostile environment of the pagan practices and other idolatries. The authorities over the nations will be given with the faithful sharing in the rule of Jesus' kingdom in heaven. They will be given an iron scepter, which will be used to rule over the nations. This reflects the tool which is used by shepherds to fight off wild animals uh, around their flocks which are attacking them. In 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says, Do you not know that we will judge angels? Indicating this idea of us sharing in that rule in heaven. So just as Jesus received authority from his Father to rule, he will also give it to us who are faithful to him to the end. So the faithful will also be given that morning star. So there's a lot of discussion in the commentaries about what that really means. But I think it means it refers, it means that we'll get Jesus himself. We'll have that perfect relationship with him. In Revelation 22:16, it says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. This reflects that perfect relationship that we'll have with Jesus if we live a life that's pleasing to him and faithful to him. So importantly, the church in Thyatira and the church today have been told at the end of this letter to actively hear what the Spirit says, reflecting what Jesus said at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 7, 24 to 25, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fail, did not fall, but it had its foundation on the rock. So there's a final challenge for us, to build our lives on that rock. Let's move forward and be challenged to, through our faith in Jesus and our understanding of his teachings, be built up against the sin and the evil within us and around us in the church. Of course, we do a lot of good here at KBC. We do a lot of good charity. We love each other and all the stuff that we should be doing as a church. But we need to keep on doing battle with that sin that's around us daily. We need to think about the things we need to repent of today. What do we need to repent of? What do we need to confess? I hope that we're encouraged as a church to keep on praying for our daily battle, striving for God. To tackle spiritual indifference and that tolerance of sin while never ceasing to love each other and to love God during these times. So I just want to close in prayer here. And before I do, just we have the prayer ministry there. It will be up in the corners. And if you want to confess of anything or talk about anything or anything at all, just go and chat to them and they'll be happy to pray for you. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us, that you desire to have a relationship with each and every one of us. We're thankful that you're a just God, that you're pained by evil and sin in this world, and that you long for us to be free of that. You search us and you know us, our thoughts and our deeds, and you know the sin that's within us and around us, yet you still love us. We ask that you'd help us confront that, that you'd remind us that we're forgiven of our sins, that we are embraced by your love, and we cannot earn our place of righteousness before you, that it's by grace that we have been saved. Help us to live lives that are pleasing to you, that we don't squander what you've given us, and that you bless us and help us go through this week ahead. We want to live as your son Jesus did, but we know that we're not perfect and that we will fall short. But we thank you for your forgiveness, that when we do sin, that we can get back up and try again when we do stumble. We just ask that you would move here in KBC, move in our hearts, search us and know us, forgive us and lead us in a life pleasing to you. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Okay, thank you.